the research on, on couples is such that most couples therapists can watch like a five minute snippet of a couple argue oh. and predict a divorce with accuracies of over 90%. Oh, that's rough. Mm, as a therapist, I tend to think it's great, but okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's rough for the couple who's arguing in that way. Why that, why that is, is because it is how couples argue that gives you a window into the relationship satisfaction oh. and longevity. It's how they process conflict. And there's several factors that have been shown to, you know, bode well for couples versus bode poorly for couples. Welcome to the Michaela Peterson Podcast. This is episode 111 with Guy Winch. Guy Winch is a psychologist and author and host of his own psychology podcast. He specializes in the topics of trauma, heartbreak, and couples' relationships. He's written several self-help books and co-hosts a podcast called Dear Therapists, which is pretty entertaining. I wanted to speak with him about the subject of heartbreak, how to heal a broken heart. He authored How to Fix a Broken Heart. For anyone having a hard time in your relationship or trying to get over someone, this might help. Again, like I said last episode, this is an episode from about a month ago when things were a bit crazy in my life. I'll be doing a Q&A soon to update everyone. And things are much better now. I hope you enjoy this episode and have a fantastic week. If you enjoy this content, please remember to hit subscribe. Dr. Guy Winch, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. Uh, I had somebody on Instagram reach out and say, you have to get this guy on. He knows everything about relationships and heartbreak and trauma. And I've been on a how to deal with trauma kick. But I thought for this episode, we should talk specifically about relationships and heartbreak. But before we get started, could you give a brief background about who you are and what it is you do? So I'm a psychologist and I also write books. I have three self-help books. Um, I also have three TED Talks um, and I have a podcast called Dear Therapists with co-host Lori Gottlieb in which we um, have guests write us letters in which they need advice, but we bring them on for actual kind of therapy session live. Cool. And then we give them advice and then they have to do it and report back on how it went. So you kind of get a full arc of the story each week. Oh, that's interesting. So you talk to people and they come back on the podcast to tell you how it's going and to tell the audience. Yeah, but not just that. When we do it, we don't talk about the case beforehand. So my co-host and I, we have to jump in as two therapists blind, not knowing what the other one thinks and try and navigate it to an interesting place. And so it's, it's uh, interesting all along. That is interesting. Okay. Okay. So you have a number of self-help books. Your most recent one, what was your most recent one about? Called How to Fix a Broken Heart. It uh, had a, has a TED talk of the same name and it's about really what happens to us when we have romantic heartbreak um, because a lot happens to us. Okay. So let's start there then. Um, I remember when I was, <laughs> I, I suppose this happens to everybody somewhat. But when I was little, like in grade nine or 10 and had my first real relationship and I thought I was going to grow up and get married to him, um, and was 100% certain that was going to happen. And when we broke up, I was just distraught, like unbelievably distraught. So what does happen 
um, with heartbreak. So two things. Actually, first of all, what's interesting about heartbreak is that thing that happened to you in ninth or 10th grade happens to us in our 20s, in our 30s, in our 40s. We get similarly distraught um, at all ages. And I work with heartbroken people of all ages. It kind of doesn't matter how old you are. If you're truly heartbroken, you are heartbroken. And what's interesting about heartbreak is that there is no other common experience in life because right, heartbreak is not something you'll see in the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental mm -hmm. disorders. There's no such thing. So it's just a life experience. There is no life experience like it in which can take somebody who has no psychological problems and render them non-functional and almost a little bit crazy um, in a blink. That's what's so fascinating about it. There's no other thing that the grief can make us you know, very, very upset, but we don't act out of sorts. We don't lose our mind and do things we would never do otherwise. We do with heartbreak. Okay, so grief and heartbreak are, are separate. They're separate. I mean, I, heartbreak is a form of grief. It's one that we don't recognize so much as a sanctioned form of grief, like we do losing a first degree relative, but our reactions are as powerful. And if you recall back to that time, you said you were distraught. People do get devastated. They feel like they've lost their worlds. They, they can, even as adults, they can sit in bed and not be able to eat or sleep or function for days on end. That's all they can think about. They, they will do desperate acts they would never otherwise do. And you're like, what is wrong with me that I'm doing this? Mm -hmm. But I'm just so desperate. And so, yeah, it, it really does a number on us. Okay, so can we talk a bit about exactly what happened? Like, why is it that sometimes you're in a relationship and then you, this happens to you and you're distraught and kind of insane, like you said. Um, why, is it that, why is it that that happens sometimes and what exactly is happening? Is it cortisol or just on that level? So what functional MRI studies or brain scans have showed is that um, the same thing roughly, the same thing happens to our brain when our love is removed, when the person we love is removed from our life or they remove themselves usually from our lives. Um, as happens when heroin addicts are, um, oh. are withdrawing from heroin. And if you think about it that way, it kind of explains it. Because if you would think of a heroin addict who was withdrawing, yeah, they would, they would steal, they would do all kinds of terrible things they would never otherwise do. But everyone goes, well, they were an addict. So that's how desperate they were. As if that explains, it does, it explains the level of desperation, the level of, of, of change in behavior. It's the same mechanisms that are getting activated when we are heartbroken. And it's that same level of absolute desperation that you would hmm. see happening uh, for an addict. So, so that's the why. I mean, when you look at the brain, the brain's acting very similar. And it's at least explains why people are so out of sorts. So is that, is that for specifically like an opiate withdrawal or is that just withdrawal in general. The, the analogy was to opiate withdrawals, uh, opiate uh, withdrawal, even to cocaine withdrawal, but to like real substance okay. withdrawal that you really, you know, are looking for. And I think the opiate just kind of people associate that behavior yeah, with yeah. drug addiction. So like, oh yeah, I know what that looks like. Well, it looks yeah. the same. It looks the same really is the, the shocking but huh. unreasonable part. Okay. That's interesting. That is kind of what it feels like right? When you're going through it, because you're like, I just want to see something that reminds me of them again, or something like that, just to get some sort of hit. Okay. Right. 
So or, if you're trying, that's why you'll send 150 text messages, just <laughs> waiting just to get one word response for that hit. Exactly what you said. Yes. Wow. Okay. So what's the best way, way to deal with heartbreak? So say you're in a relationship, uh, say you've been broken up with, is it best to go cold Turkey then and to treat it kind of similar to an addiction? Or to wean off? How are you supposed to deal with this? Well, I, if it's possible, because sometimes it's not, but if it's possible to do cold turkey, I always recommend cold turkey. Your goal when you're heartbroken um, is to stop hurting, should be, right? I mean, to get over the person. Yeah. To get over them, you have to stop hurting. To stop hurting, you have to reduce their presence in your thoughts. Because right at the beginning, that's 95% of your thoughts is them. Them, 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 them. Um, the more you reduce that, the more you're moving away from it, the more you're recovering from it, the, more, the less painful it becomes. So that's the goal. So in order to diminish their presence in your thoughts at the stage time that you give them, cold turkey is the right way to go if it's possible. It's very, very difficult to do, as any addict will tell you. It's actually, it's actually very difficult to do. And what makes it even more difficult is that almost in every case, there was a blind side involved. And I say that even in cases in which, you know, people say to me like, well, we broke up 10 times over the past two years, but I never expected this one would be the, and I'm like, wow, you broke up 10 times and this one, what's the, but the thing is that when, when people are looking to break up with us, they, I mean, unless they dated, you know, unless it's, you had two or three dates, if it's, if it's been anything of any kind of substance, most people will time it, will like decide, okay, I want to break up unless it's a big fight in the moment, which is a minority of cases, it's thought through about when I'll do it. And okay. often, often they do it in a considerate way. Often they do it because, oh, you know, her big thing is coming up next week. So let's not do it right before that. I'll wait till after. Oh, we had this vacation planned. Things aren't terrible. Let's go on that vacation. Let's just get through the holidays. And so everything seems fine until they pull the trigger. And then suddenly like, wait, what happened? Things were fine a day ago. That's true. That's true. I suppose it's difficult with social media now too, to not like, you know, before if, if you were in a different city or you just don't see them around. Right. And then you're not thinking about them, but now with social media and Instagram, it's a problem. You need to, you need to do the brave thing and you need to block and unfollow and defriend, even if it's temporarily, you don't want to see what's going on with them because to remind you, They've been thinking about this for a while. So they're way ahead of you in terms of recovery. And no one puts out their like, oh. here's me crying into a pillow Instagram picture. You know, they'll find the one moment where they're happy and post that. Meanwhile, you're sitting there crying into a pillow thinking like they're completely over me. Well, A, they've had a major head start, weeks, months, sometimes years of a head start of getting over you. And B, oh. you know, again, they're putting out this highly curated image of, look, I'm fine, everyone. So it's just going to hurt to see it. So don't, don't see it. Okay. No, that makes sense. Um, so does that mean, say you've been going out with somebody and you're really good friends with them and you're no longer romantically interested, does that mean friendships off the table for exes? If temporarily, I would say, I mean, I always say, for now, take a few months or however much to truly get over them. Now, if once you're truly over them and you know that because it's not tugging at you in that way, you want to be friends, it doesn't hurt to be friends, go at it. But the majority of people, once it gets there, are like, mm, that's going to be complicated. We don't, I don't need that friendship. The friend excuse, and I say excuse, is because it is an excuse at the beginning. It's just, 
no, I can be friends without actually having my guts ripped out every time I talk to them. And no, you can't, not at the beginning. Okay, fair enough. When, if you're in a relationship with someone and you're trying to make it work, how do you know, are there signs that can tell you when you should leave and when you should keep trying to make it work? Um, that's such a great question because it depends on all kinds of variables. I mean, my general philosophy is if you can keep working at it and, you know, I mean, relationships, even ones that have lasted the 40, 50 years are a constant study and working on things. I mean, circumstance changes, people, you know, change. So you you constantly have to shift and tweak and work on things. So, so my philosophy is if you can keep working and, oh, by the way, which means together, not you unilaterally in your head doing what you think the relationship needs without the other person participating in that or being aware you're doing it. If you can work and communicate together for as long as you can, you should, unless you're both like we can, but we're both unhappy. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, because I just think that's the, if you have something invested there, why, why not? If things are mutual. Okay. How do you get over somebody if you can't stop thinking they were, you know, the one person for you? Or if you tried dating, you know, say you went out for with 15 people, just like small dates, some sort of Tinder style dating, and you found this one person, you had a great relationship for a few years, and you thought they were the one and then that falls apart. How do you get over the mindset of that was the one person that was for me? That's a very hard thing to do. But one thing I always suggest to people is kind of what you said. In other words, there's not the one or my soulmate makes it sound like, you know, seven and a half billion people on the planet. I lost count, I think seven and a half, whatever billion people. There's one, one that matches me. And it's like, no, no, no. There are probably many hundreds of thousands that match you. It took you 15 of those Tinder style, you know, uh, explorations to find this one. Maybe that's your ratio. You got to, you know, one in 15 is the one for you. All that means is, yeah, you got to get out there and start getting those numbers in and, and finding the next one once you're free to do that. So people get lost in the thing, you know, get trapped into the thing. It's the only person. It's not the only person. It might be hard for you to find someone, which might be true for you. But then, all right, then the sooner you start looking when you feel up to it, then it might take a while. But you will if you keep looking. It's hard for you. You just have to generate more options eventually you will, right? So, so rather than take the one person as the sign there's only one, take them as, no, it's possible to find if I put that much work into it. So now I know how much work I have to put into it to find it again once I'm over this person, obviously. Yeah, so how do you know when to get into the dating market again? You know, it's, it's tough. People always kind of ask me, like, how do I know if it's too soon? Yeah. Go on another date. And I basically, well, if you can make it through without crying, is my scientifically rigorous standard. If you can make it through without, you know, bursting into tears, um, you might be ready. Because, you know, it, it, part of getting, of becoming ready is flexing those muscles again, is putting yourself out there, is, you know, you know, interacting in that way, is flirting and, you know, texting and, trying to get banter going. I mean, that's part of getting yourself ready is kind of revisiting those, those social muscles that we don't use when we're in a relationship as much in that, in that in, um, you know, to, to meet someone at least in that way. So it's this thing, if you wait until you're for sure ready, you've waited too long. And hmm. so, you know, as long as you think, you know what, I think 
I might be interested in someone. You don't have to be ready emotionally fully. You can say to a person, I'm recently out of a relationship. I want to take this slow. But if there's someone who, at least on paper, even theoretically, seems that might be interesting to you, then take it slowly and see. You know, again, if you're too preoccupied, you're not paying attention to what the person's saying and you certainly don't talk about yeah. sex, you know, on, a, on those dates. It's a that definite rule. Don't, don't discuss it because that'll be, a, you know, it's not good. But um, it's not attractive and it'll trigger you. Um, but if you can get, if you can do that, then try it out. Trial and error. Okay. I would say that's, that's sound advice. I haven't been in, like dating around for a very long time. So I don't know what the dating market looks like now. But how do you feel about how people are meeting each other nowadays? I mean, given the, given COVID too, things have gotten a little weird in the last couple of years. But even before that with like I mentioned, Tinder, whatever other app people are using, where you kind of just see this snapshot and you're doing like swiping right and left. Is that, is that okay? Is that healthy? Are there problems with that? What are your views on that? I think my views are mixed. I think most people, even the users' views are mixed in some way. There's, the, I mean, the, the number one pro of the apps is convenience. You know, uh, when I was you know, a teenager, young adult, it was before social media, you actually had to go somewhere. Yeah. You know, you actually had to be in a bar or be at a this or, or be somewhere um, where you will meet someone and then you actually get to see them in person. And this whole issue of chemistry is a little clearer because you've actually met them in person rather than seeing just pictures or videos or whatever. So there was an advantage to that. Um, the convenience is you can do this from your own home. The inconvenience is that it, there's so many people on there who are not really looking to meet, who are really just there because they just want to, you know, get the attention or they just want to pass the time or they just want to stick it to the person they're with by going on there. Like people have very different, or they're about to go on a trip for a month. So just before they go, but really they're not available. So you're wading mm -hmm. through a lot of people who seem to be available, but actually are not. And that you don't know until you're doing all the swiping and then people aren't responding and you're like, it must be me. And it's like, a lot of the times it's nothing to do with you. They're actually not available or they're actually not there for that. Or they're not really serious about meeting. You know, they just want to kind of see what's out there almost like they're, you know, reading the newspaper. They're not really serious about it. So you don't know and you have to yeah. wait through all of, the, all of those people to maybe find the people who are serious. This episode is brought to you by True Local. True Local partners with local farmers and butchers in your area to source the best meat and deliver it to your door. Things like 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, pasture-raised or RWA chicken, raised without antibiotics, lamb, bison, liver, and more. I recommend their grain-fed beef. I think it tastes better. Wild salmon and their lamb is bomb. They also have over 100 different cuts of meat that you can't find at your grocery store, most likely. To get started, just go to truelocal, T-R-U-local.ca for Canadians or T-R-U-localUSA.com for Americans to build your own personalized box of meat. Shows up at your door vacuum sealed and individually portioned, which is perfect for meal prep. Also buy an air fryer. Just throw those steaks in frozen. That's the biggest life hack I have. Use code MP to get free steak in your order at truelocal.ca or truelocalusa.com. Code MP for free steaks. I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. 
Have you heard about ways to date that's more effective than Tinder dating or, or something like that, given the fact that a lot of people on those apps are, hell, some of them are even in relationships and they're just like curious. Yeah, so they're not actually right. looking for something long-term. Are there long-term dating strategies that you'd recommend? Yeah, look, the one thing I always recommend is that what is the thing that you are passionate about? What is the thing that you you know, really feels like a part of you. It's something that you engage in. It's part of your identity. You might be a runner. You might okay. be, you know, into this band. You might be a sports fan. You might be in a sports team. You might, whatever it is, you might enjoy this kind of concert or this kind of art. If you find a way to engage in that with other people, then the people you are likely to meet there, at least have one thing in common with you. You're both passionate or you're both interested that makes in something. Sense. And I use running just because for runners, it's actually a big, you know, if you're a runner, then you spend many hours a week running, obviously. And so that's a lot of hours that if you met somebody in a running group that you have in common. And so, and that's a great way to know someone. So if you can like two birds with one stone, if you can like dual purpose it and do the thing that interests you in the first place, and perhaps there meet the person who is interested in the same thing, that I think is a great way to, to meet somebody in person. Then you have things in common as well, right At off the bat. At least one, and it's a passion, yeah. Okay, how do you feel about couples who date each other who have nothing in common? <laughs> um, you mean the ones that show up in my therapy office? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, because that's what often happens. Um, couples are sometimes together Ooh. because of circumstance, right? They met in college or they were yeah. working together and, and that circumstance made them feel like there was a lot in common, but remove the circumstance and there's not, it turns out. And, and you get couples who've really, or couples who've met young and just grown apart and you feel like, well, their lives are about all of these things and the other person's lives are about a whole lot of other things and there's so little overlap. There's so little that they're truly interested in with one another. Those are the couples that are most likely to drift emotionally from one another and to start to feel lonely, even though they are together. Because loneliness happens a lot within relationships and it can be profound mm -hmm. when it happens within relationships. But, but that's what you would expect because that area of overlap, okay. that communication kind of, you know, kind of just like fizzles out because there's just not that much binding them. Hmm. I've spoken to some other people on the podcast. I can't remember who. And I've asked a similar question, which is what happens if the person you're with is very different from you and there isn't a lot in common. And some people said it makes it more interesting, but I think your way, <laughs> your thoughts might be more accurate, but is, yeah. What do you do? Okay. So what if you're in a relationship with someone, you guys don't have a lot of overlap. Is there a way to fix that? Yes. Now, look, what a lot of time happens is that when people have kids, that becomes the common, that becomes the common. Oh, brand. so the have children. Is, no, 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 no. Because <laughs> Just when, kidding. you know, when the kids are older and when the kids leave, they're back to like, uh, oh, who are you yeah. and why am I with you? So it doesn't, you know, that, no, I mean, that often happens. Emptiness is often, or even not, you don't have to wait emptiness. Kids are teenagers. They're not interested in you as much. They want to be with their friends and yeah. suddenly look at each other like, oh, why don't we have that conversation tonight? Uh, you know, that's, uh, and it's, but you can be very different, but you can still have overlap. You can still have very meaningful conversation. You can be a couple who talk together about all kinds of things, even if you are not, you know, they're interested in X, you're interested in Y, but you're open to hearing about theirs and they're open to hearing about yours and they support you in theirs and you support them in yours. And there can be overlap there. There can be overlap socially. You might 
really have one kind of purpose or one kind of value or one kind of belief that really binds you, but there's got to be some connective tissue. And so you might be very different, but then the task early on is we'll find the connective tissue. It could be sex, it could be physical attraction, truly. I mean, that's kept a lot of couples together because, you know, yeah, but wow, we're just really, here we are still really into each other. Whatever it is, <laughs> that's, that's the task. To find what that connective tissue is for you. Okay. How do you feel about couples working together? What if that's the connective tissue? That they work together? Yeah. Um, for some couples that works very, very well. And for some couples that, um, that masks a relationship. In other words, that makes it seem like they're connected when in essence they're not. Um, and so, yeah, they work together well, but all their conversations are about work. They don't really talk about themselves or the relationship, just about the, the relationship as work partners, just about what do we do with this account and this, this, and this, this, but not. Yeah. How do we feel about one another? What do I need from you that I'm not getting? What do you need from me that you're not getting? Those conversations don't take place. It becomes very transactional. That's also going to be a recipe for eventual disengagement because, you know, work is great, but then they're going to have a vacation and realize now what? And then the, those are the, all the kids. All they talk about is the kids because it's the one connection they have and they avoid any other conversation. Again, it's not a recipe that's going to last or bring happiness long-term. You really have to, and I kind of believe that two people can find that common ground, but they have to mutually look for it. They have to be open to exploring with one another, opening themselves up, you know, like really trying to get to know one another. Like you've been together for a while, but get to know one another again. Do you know what she's thinking? Do you know what he's feeling? You know, like if you put in that work, you can usually find the common ground, but it's got to be mutual and, and, you know, and intentional. Okay. What would common ground look like if you don't have common ground with somebody? Like, how do you dive into them and try and figure out where the commonalities are? How do you even start that? <laughs> it's kind of exactly as you said it. In fact, you just dive in and start to see where the commonalities are. Again, couples have been together for a while. Don't ask each other things because they think they know each other so well, they don't have to ask. They don't ask, well, what are you thinking about what I'm seeing on the news right now? Or I just read this. What do you think about that? And that's not in a domain. It could be something they read that's nothing to do with one of them that they don't know. Like, oh, I just saw that this happened in the world. What do you think about that? And it could be an area of the world I never even spoke about before. Like, but explore that. Like, hey, I've never done, I don't know why I use this cover, pottery. I've never done pottery. Um, do you want to give that a try? Like, search for things that you would do or oh, i know we really travel well together let's organize some weekend trips and explore places i'll organize one you organize the other if you go about literally that search like go on the on the on the hints you have of what works well between you but just be open-minded and truly kind of explore uh, what you think about certain things or what interests you um you know couples do this thing where like they binge watch tv shows and it's and they feel like oh we're so connected we binge watch the mm -hmm. show like if you didn't talk between the episodes you're not because it could have been anyone sitting next to you like if you pause between episodes and hey what do you think about that or wow what was good what did you like what what do you think will happen even if there's a few minutes of conversation about it you're making it a mutual experience otherwise it's like parallel play with kids he is playing with one he is playing with another but they're not really interacting less connective so you want to you can make it more connective again there's an intentionality that happens with that that should happen with it okay and it, is this kind of 
getting to know the other person, is that something you have to do for your entire relationship? If it's a 50 year long relationship, you just have to keep finding this common ground or does that just happen sometimes? Okay, you made that sound very exhausting, which it can be. And I don't think it needs to be continual, you know, but I think that because, you, you know, like you don't, you don't have to work on things all the time, but you, there are periods where you'll feel things are working well and there are periods where you'll feel you're drifting or things feel a little bit different. And that's when you have to work on things. So as long as one of you, as long as you check in with each other every once in a while, hey, how are we doing? I noticed we've not been talking as much or we seem to be a little bit on edge. Maybe we should talk about how we're doing and maybe we need to, you know, like make some effort to do whatever it is that we need from one another. Like doing those check-ins, you know, we go to physical checkups usually past a certain age. We go once a year to get your blood work done. At least once or twice a year, get your emotional temperature taken, you know, with your partner. To me, I would think over a long course of a relationship. And then if there's a little bit of something, then address it. That makes sense. Um, how do you know when you're near the beginning of a relationship, how do you know if you're falling in love with the person or what you think that person is, especially if the relationship is new? What an amazing question. And here's the depressing answer. Yet yeah, don't. Um, because at the beginning of a relationship, you have a few dots of information, which you connect to make a, you know, a, 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 a uh, Mona Lisa. But that Mona Lisa is made from like 10 or 15 day, you know, dots on the canvas, not from the you know, exquisite brush strokes. You're filling in a lot of blanks with assumptions, yeah. a ton. So you don't know. Um, it's always a process of getting to know and reminding yourself, as unromantic as this sounds, like, mm, don't know everything yet. Here are a couple of milestones I always point out. Number one, if you don't know how the person fights when they're really angry, then you don't really oh. know them yet. Because I know a lot of people who are great, but when they lose it, they go from zero to raving really quickly. And if you haven't seen that side of them, and you might not for months, because things are wonderful and honeymoon period and all of that. But then suddenly you see, if, if they're not able to, you know, they can get angry, but if they're not able to communicate or to resolve conflict, or if they just act out, or if they really lose it, that might be a big issue in a relationship which you might not find out about for a while. Um, and the other thing is you don't know how they are under stress. Some people, for example, I say, have you traveled together? Because some people travel great. And some people, the minute you give them a plane ticket in their hand, become a ball of annoying stress. They're irritable mm -hmm. and they're sharp and they're sweating and they're panicked and they're anxious. And it's like, this is not a fun way to start a holiday. Um, but you don't know that, you know, until or that there's been a really stressful time at work. How do they manage stress? Can they lean on you? Are you able to help them? Do they shut you out? Do they? So there's certain things that you don't find out early on, but they're actually crucial for the potential longevity uh, or you know viability of a relationship. So so you you have to remember that you're still, you know, when we're dating, we're putting forth our best selves, right? This is the, this is the brochure you, version you get. This is the pamphlet. This is that everything, you know, like people should be on that best behavior. It doesn't tell you what their normative behavior is. It just tells you what their efforts are. That's really smart. 
that seems somewhat obvious, but I suppose if you're in the honeymoon period and you've just started dating someone, you're like, yeah, we never argue. It's great. We're never stressed out. We're just happy right. together. Everything's perfect. It's like, right. no, no matter who you're going out with, you just haven't seen them angry yet. You haven't right. seen them stressed yet. Right. And and maybe they're an angel when they are. Maybe you're not an angel, but maybe they're very manageable and you're like, oh, wow, this is you stressed. That's great. Or this is you able to communicate when we have yeah. a problem. Like if you... One of the things I always say to people, bring this up early in a relationship, even if it's very mild, bring up an issue because it's symbolic of how somebody deals. Like if you on you know, date number five, say, uh, bring up and say, hey, I just wanted to bring something up. I'm really enjoying you know, seeing you, but this is the fifth time you've been a little bit late. And I just want to say I, I'm someone who doesn't do well with that. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention just to let you know that if you could make efforts, I'd really appreciate it. I understand that can happen, but... You say it nicely, you say it, and if they go like, and they might say like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I know I'm like that. I'll, I will definitely try and make an effort. That's nice. If they mm -hmm. go like, well, what do you mean I'm late? So I was so late, why are you making a big deal out of it? And you said it there nicely and that's their response, that's also informative, right? But you can get that information pretty early on by being very nice in terms of how you bring up a small thing just to see how they discuss it. That's sneaky, I like that. I can remember uh, when I was, I used to have health problems, which I do not anymore, thank goodness. But when I was doing my like Tinder dating, which was just kind of going out for coffee, trying to meet people, I can remember I was late one time and somebody snapped at me and it was like date two and wow. I was late and they snapped at me and I was like, ho ho. And then I snapped back at them. It just didn't go well. Anyway, good right, memories. But, 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 but day two is inappropriate for them to snap at you. They should actually be nice. So that revealed something you know, that had you not been late, you wouldn't have found out. So, so that's True. what I'm saying. Like, but that's the thing. Bug like, them a bit, see what happens. <laughs> right. So when everything goes perfectly, it's not that everything's perfect. It's that you don't quite know yet. It might be. It certainly might yeah. be. You don't know yet. Okay. Let's see. I have a whole bunch of questions I want to ask you. I just need to pick which ones. Okay. This is a little bit different. So, um, I told you I've been kind of delving into trauma and how to recover from trauma. So how do you recover from shared traumatic experiences so that you're not setting each other off by reminding them of the trauma you guys both have gone through? What a great question. And that's a bit of a tricky one. I think over this past year and a half, a lot of people have been through shared yeah. traumatic yeah. experiences. Quarantining together? <laughs> Well, yeah, but, you know, like, I mean, I, I live in New York City, the, you know, it was, it was the epicenter at the beginning, a lot of people here have this look and they tell you, oh, the sirens, because at first Aww. month, people were just locked in their apartments, afraid to go outside, and all you had were sirens day and night, every several times an hour, you just couldn't get away from it. And so the sirens were so traumatic, it felt like the end of the world. And, um, yeah, uh, but how you get over trauma, number one, is that Two things I want to say about that that are a little counterintuitive for people. Most people think that the psychologist would say, oh, if it's trauma, you have to talk about it. You've got to bring it out. You've got to, like, you know, get it out of your system. You have to debrief about it. That's yeah. not necessarily true. There are people, when they've been through traumatic events, that feel the need to talk about them. And if you feel the need to talk about the traumatic events, you should. But there are people who go through the same traumatic event and actually feel the need to not talk about it. They feel that they'd rather compartmentalize it 
and just kind of move on. I don't want to talk about it. I just want to move on. And for those people who don't want to talk about it, who are able to compartmentalize and move on, being forced to talk about it um, can actually be more scarring um, than not. After 9-11 in New York City, there was one study that showed that the more people spoke about the events, the harder it was for them to move past them. That the people who experienced similar events but didn't talk about them because they didn't want to, um, did better long term. So it's an individual thing. You need to know whether you feel the need to talk. And some people definitely feel the need to, I don't want to deal with it, I just want to move on. And, and if you're the move on type, then it's not great for you to talk. And if you're the talker type, it's important. And so that is also important when it's two people because you hope to be matched there. I mean, often it's one person like, I really want to talk and the other person I really don't because I don't want to get re-traumatized. Every time you bring yeah. up a memory, you're kind of, re yeah. you're laying down that memory again. And so you, if you're bringing it up in a traumatic way, you're actually making that trauma worse. And so for the person who doesn't want to do it, it's not wise for them to, then maybe the other person should find, you know, someone to talk to who does want to talk about things. But even to have that conversation, what's your preference? Do you have something you want to talk about, et cetera? The other thing about trauma, just the most you know, known thing about trauma, is that the best way through it is to um, find meaning. And you can only do that in a certain distance of time and, 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 and emotional distance. But mm -hmm. to find meaning, to have a way to extract something from that event that it taught you, that it showed you, that you could make changes based on, and then it has purpose or utility, even if it was very, very difficult. And that often takes that edge. Um, off, uh, you know, what the trauma does uh, or the, the scars that it leaves. Yeah. Purposeless suffering is much, much worse than suffering and learning something or being able to help somebody because you experienced something or yeah. something like that. Does So you talked about how some people are better or they prefer to compartmentalize versus talk about it. Does that have a lot to do with how soon after the traumatic experience occurred, they're trying to delve into it? Like if they wait a certain amount of time, then do some people go from compartmentalizing, it's hard to say, to talking about it? Yeah, I mean, there, there can be an initial shock period. Literally, um, these, uh, you know, the, the in, when there's certain, you know, um, mass events, then, then you have most people who experience uh, trauma or shock are actually taken to hospitals for evaluation. The, the non-physically damaged are also taken to hospitals and they're considered yeah, among the injured true. because they are injured. Now that initial shock um, subsides, you know, after however many hours or days, and then what are you left with? And so it may be in those, in that first few moments where you're still coming to terms with what, what happened here, um, it's hard to tell, are you somebody who needs to talk or, or not? But in the days after, Again, you will feel that need uh, once that shock is passed a bit to to want to talk about it, or you'll feel the need to I don't, and you'll know that very clearly. And it's very it's similar with grief when people lose a relative. Sometimes the assumption is because we have all these rituals about the community coming together to talk about things, but sometimes some people are like, can we just not talk about them though? Because I, I I'm up for the distraction, but I just don't want to talk. That's too painful for me to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So even in grief, sometimes people can can have that choice, but you know it because you, you feel like, oh, I don't want to do this, or I really want to do this. I wish somebody could listen. You know that, right? So. Yeah, it's complicated. I've had a number of 
experiences I wouldn't recommend. I mean, everybody has. Um, and I've noticed depending on the experience, I'll either go into, I don't want to talk about it. Like don't try and get into my head and dissect whatever I'm thinking. Don't want to talk about it to, oh, I need to write about it. Or, you know, talking to a therapist would help, um, depending on how tough the situation is, maybe sometimes it takes a certain period of time and then I'm like, okay, now I can talk about it, but it's been a year. So I, I, and you said something very important there and that's the, the, the writing part because writing is super, super, super useful because it helps you. It's private. So you don't have to share it with someone, but it helps yeah. you organize your thoughts because when we have those big feelings attached to whatever the traumatic event were, was, then it's sometimes hard to, you know, like when you're feeling that, it's hard to organize your thoughts because you're feeling something so strongly, it kind of shuts down. The minute we go back to our, to our, our more primitive, uh, uh, in terms of evolution, uh, our more primitive structures, it takes away from our executive functioning from the newer ones. And so, our, you know, the more upset we are, the, the less thinking we can do with clarity. Writing forces emotional distance because to translate what the thought and feeling is into words that you then organize and actually do the fine motor skill of writing them down or typing them. It, it is a laborious uh, mental execution that actually creates emotional distance and then lowers the emotional response enough for you to have more clarity in your thinking about it. So it's very useful as a way to, especially when you're feeling a lot of things to, to or you're feeling things very strongly to organize your thoughts, to get your own bearings before you then, you know, like a lot of people say, like, I can't talk to someone, I need to know what I think first or what I feel first. Well, writing is a great way to get in touch with it. Okay. I love that. I've found writing really useful. Um, when I was, actually, I still do this sometimes if I get really, really wound up in an argument or there's too many things going on in my brain and I'm in an argument with somebody, sometimes I find arguing over by writing is actually a good way to ease into that. When I was like going back to my first relationship in high school before texting was really a thing, I would, and maybe this was weird, but if I got really mad about something, I'd write it down. So I'd be able to tell them that way, but I didn't have the, I was too stressed out or worried. Like, just like, I can't talk about this, but like, this is why I'm angry. I found that really useful, even though it kind of felt like cheating. I don't think it's cheating at all. Uh, look, for, for, for someone like me, um, the, the ideal there is what, what makes the communication best, right? I mean, that's the goal, like what allows you to communicate best. And for you, if you were to talk about it and you would get upset and then it would be harder to articulate what's going on with you versus mm -hmm. writing it down again with that emotional distance it forces and the ability to articulate things because you can go and you can edit and you can truly, and some people actually, the, you know, our verbal expression and our written expression is not uh, yeah. aligned with a lot of people. Some people are much stronger in one than the other. They can speak amazingly, write poorly or vice versa. So you writing was you communicating as clearly as you could. So to me, that's the win, right? I mean, that's the smart thing to do. And I sometimes recommend to couples who've been together for a long time, if they're explosive, if they tend to kind of go from zero to War of the Roses in like two sentences, do it via text. Do it via, you know, yeah, emails okay. because the other person won't interrupt you. They won't, you know, like speak over you. They won't start yelling when you're in the middle of what you want to say. You actually get to finish what you say. They get to finish what they say. So if you're having trouble communicating because it's too explosive, do it in text, do it in writing. That To me, that's, that's not a cheat. And it's actually the more efficient 
way to do it sometimes. Okay. That makes sense. Or if you're the type of person, like you said, that's explosive, or you're going to get mad and say something you don't mean, if you're writing it down, then you can say, okay, scratch that. That isn't yeah. what exactly You know, you write it and then you take it out. Exactly right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. That's really helpful information. Uh, let's see. Um, I think I kind of asked this earlier, but how do you know... Okay, I've seen couples that will stay together for a very long period of time. And from the outside, it just doesn't look any good. And you can see that from the outside, but because they're in the relationship, they can't see that. So are there signs people should look for to know whether or not they should just end the relationship? Like you you talked about people staying together or having kids so they had something in common when they don't. Um are there signs you've seen in couples where you're like, stop torturing yourselves? Oh yeah. Um, the, the research on, on couples is such that most couples therapists can watch like a five minute snippet of a couple argue oh. and predict a divorce with accuracies of over 90%. Oh, that's rough. Hmm. As a therapist, I tend to think it's great, but okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not for the couple who's arguing in that way. Why? That, but why that is is because it is how couples argue that gives you a window into the relationship satisfaction oh. and longevity. It's how they process conflict, and there's several factors that have been shown to you know bode well for couples versus bode poorly for couples. Here's one factor that bodes well. I'll give you one of each bodes well, um, there's something called bids. Bids is you're sitting with your partner and your partner, you know, reads something in the paper and goes, oh, wow, this is really interesting. That's a bid to connect because you're then supposed to say, oh, what is it? And then they tell you and you go, oh, wow, or this or that. If they, so, if they say, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And you're like, can't you see I'm working? Mm, not so good. So the couples that offer bids and respond to them have a great prognosis. Um, it, it's a very positive sign that you're offering bids to connect small, minor moments, right? And I gave this example of a minor, minor, minor moment. But if you think of these moments as that was a bid to connect um, and you respond to it, that's very good for couples. Um, what's very bad for couples is when in an argument, you quickly get to contempt. And you can see that, and I've seen that in my office, and I've seen that, unfortunately, at dinner parties, where you can see that one person annoys the other and there's contempt there, either on the face or, yeah. in, the, or in the language, like, like almost disgust in how they're talking. Like, how could you even like with this like facial expression that's just makes you want to like, as an observer, makes you want to, oof, that was very, very harsh. But couples are doing that to each other in public or they're, you know, they get there very quickly. That's such a bad sign, because if you so quickly lose the connection, lose the love or respect you have for that person, and go so quickly to contempt, which is truly the opposite of love and respect, then that foundation is not solid in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so there's certain things like, you know, there's contempt or there's, you know, there's a lot of jokes that you make at the other person's expense. If it's mild, if it's truly funny, if it's not a big deal for the other person, but you sometimes hear it and you can see the other person flash hurt in their eyes. And this was at a dinner party. And you're like, did you know you just wounded emotionally? You just hurt their feelings in public and embarrass them? Like, why possibly would you do that? 
it happens all the time. So those kinds of things are not good signs. And putting out bids and responding to them are good signs. Okay. What do couples who are at the contempt stage do? Is there a way to reverse that? Yes, but on one condition, only if both of you are of a mind to do that, because it will require both of you to change a habit that depends on both of you, and that's how you're arguing. You need to learn to argue more productively. You need to learn to argue with more empathy and compassion. You need to slow it down to understand the other person before you get angry with them. Like they said something that's annoying. Why did they say it? Do they really think that? Tell me more about where that came from. Like you need to be able to slow it down and get to understand things. It is a big emotional effort in that moment. What your insides are telling you is lash out, lash out. Mm -hmm. you know? And so you have to control that. You have to actually do the, you know, the thing of like managing and regulating your feelings and doing the difficult thing and doing it because you hope that they will afford you the same courtesy. And you can flip a dynamic from a very negative one into a positive one, but it takes a lot of work. This is where work would be a lot of work. And there are couples and there are many who determine that we really want this to work. We got into this bad habit. Let's really work on changing it. And when they really work together, that's what couples therapists do all the time. They can. But if one of them is in and the other one is like, I don't think I want to do it, it's not going to work. And it's certainly if both are not of mind to do it, or they just don't have any rope left because they just, I can't, I can't deal with this anymore, then it's not going to work. Okay. How do you identify a good couples therapist? Are there places to go or, yeah. That's a good question. Yes. Um, there are, first of all, it's, do not assume that any therapist has been trained as a couples therapist. It's fair when you go into a couples therapist to say, may I ask um, where you trained in couples therapy? And if they say, oh, you know, I took a class and I've just done it over the years. You know, if it's a referral from people who know them and said, yeah, they were great, maybe. But most people will be able to say, I did a master's program in couples and family therapy. I did um, four years of training plus a postdoc in couples and family therapy. And then I taught it for, for many years. In other words, you will, if you find people who've actually got that credential, who've actually learned it in clear programs, who teach it, who are known for it, they're going to be much more skilled at doing it. It's a very different modality than individual therapy. You have to be much more active. As a couples therapist, if you take your eye off the ball, again, think of an explosive couples. If you get lost in your own thought for a minute, suddenly World War III is going on in your office and you're like, oops, how did that happen? Um, mm -hmm. So you've got to be really on it. You have to be able to really multitask and think of what's going on here, here, and in your head about what needs to happen. It's So, you know, you want somebody who's uh, either been referred because they've done a very good job with somebody you know, or you're very fair to ask. And by the way, if you're asking any physician or any therapist about their specific skill set. Oh, you do this. Where did you learn it? And they get defensive. Mm. No, yeah. not a good sign. It's a very, very fair question. There's zero reason to get defensive. I get asked that still. And, you know, I'm at a certain level where people just, I have a waiting list of people waiting to see me. I still get asked, well, did you learn this? I think very fair question. I will tell them if I did. And if I didn't, I'll say no. So maybe I'm not the best person for you. Yeah. You don't need a volatile therapist trying to help your volatility, right? You want somebody well-trained if you're volatile, right? You want somebody who you know can manage the situation and, and help you rather than just feel overwhelmed by what's going on. That makes sense. Okay. How do you tell when someone you've been talking with for a while, whether or not they're interested in you? 
That seems like a simple question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Two things. Number one, don't look at anything they say, only at what they do. So literally ignore words. You know, they say, oh, no, I'm really interested and you're so great. And da, da, da. what are the actions? Who's initiating the get togethers? How quickly are they contacting you after you get together? Um, how quickly do they respond to your texts? How much are they writing? Literally counting sentences, counting lines. How many lines did they write to how many lines that you're writing? Um, and so you can see, is this somebody who seems like they're pursuing me or that they're interested and they might not be pursuing, but they're very responsive? You know, it's text messages. If it takes you more than 24 hours to respond, you'd have better been in, you know, in surgery, either as a, the surgeon or the person getting the surgery. Mm -hmm. um, like there's, there's, it's, there's no, if you're interested, there's very little circumstance, maybe you're traveling, but there's very little circumstance in which you can't just say, sorry, busy, but I'll text tomorrow, like something that's responsive um, or let someone know, you know, I'm going into this very busy week. I won't be able to like, but you know, a lot of times people are like, well, I texted and I didn't hear back. I'm still waiting. The date went so well, but it's been two days. And I'm like, they're not trying to let you know that they're interested. Maybe they still are, but, and maybe they and then when they come back on day three, do they go, oh, I'm so sorry. I got so swamped with work. Or do they say, pretend like, no, that's normal that we spent five hours together on Sunday and it's Wednesday before I say something that shows a little bit less interest to me, right? And, so, and again, if they address it and say, oh, I'm sorry, I was, you know, then they're at least aware that, no, I, there was an intention there to communicate soon or, or more quickly. So, you know, I think oftentimes people have that gut feeling, they kind of know, they just want to hope that maybe it's more positive than it feels. But when somebody is interested, you usually feel it because they make you feel they're interested. And if you don't feel it, then it's maybe to know. Not no, it's maybe, but it, but you know when it is. That totally makes sense. Okay, what happens if you're texting somebody and they're not responding very well, so it's, it's not going very well, and you're like, forget it. But then every time you don't respond for a while, they'll ping you again. Um, it's <laughs> such a common pattern, right? And it's so frustrating to people when that happens. And I think that the response to that should be um, when they ping you again, how long do they wait to ping you? You wait that long to respond. And when you do respond, say, oh, hey, you know, I was busy, but to be honest with you, I'm happy to get together again if you want, but I'm less, you know, I don't really have a ton of time for just texting for another month before we do that. So kind of, you know, <laughs> people get up the pot or, you know, like you can, just be very clear about it. Like, look, I had a fun time, but um, if you want to get together and explore another date, that's fine. If not, no problem. But, you know, it's, I, I don't, you know, don't have time to the, do the back and forth too much. I mean, you can say it nicely in some way. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, it's reasonable to expect that, you know, because that's a classic pattern of somebody that's putting you on hold or keeping you or not really serious. So yeah. you don't have to comply with it. You can just say like, hey, you know what? Um, you seem busy or otherwise preoccupied. So it was nice to know you, but you know, if, if you want to check in with me when you have the bandwidth, that's great. And otherwise we'll, you know, each other around. Whatever you say, do it nicely, obviously, because you want to leave the door open a little bit, but you want to be clear that, mm, no. Okay, that makes sense. Is that um, just between a, like a relationship between a man and a woman? 
is that more normal for a man to be less responsive? Or is that a sign that you should maybe not be as interested as you are? Men will tell me, is this normal for a woman to be this unresponsive? She must be getting so many, you know, swipes. Okay. I'm just one of them. And, and, And women always say, well, you know, he's always... So I really think it kind of goes both ways, depending on the person. But here's what I say. I'm like, when you're texting with someone, right, it might go from, you know, a date to texting or texting to a date, but that it might be the early steps of a relationship that ends up forming or not. If it if they are early steps, then you have to understand that you're kind of negotiating something in an unspoken way. You're negotiating a dynamic. And if the dynamic that you're agreeing to is... I reach out to you in a timely manner, you don't respond in a timely manner, then I respond in a timely manner, then you don't respond in a timely Ah. manner. You are setting up a dynamic in which I will make more effort in this than you do. You don't have to make as much effort as I do, is the unspoken dynamic that you're kind of agreeing to, which you do not want to agree to. So that's why you have to pay attention to these early steps. And I think texting is so useful because you can literally, whenever a patient said to me, I said, show me your phone, because I want to see in that look, they wrote two lines, you wrote six. Then they wrote one word, then you wrote two lines. You are constantly putting in more effort than them, just visually. And it comes across. So you are setting up this dynamic where you will try harder. And you don't want to set up a dynamic where you want something that's more fluid, where the whole chunks where they write a lot, and then you write a little, then it flips over, it's back and forth. But you will often see that it's very skewed. It's like one person making more effort than the other. Don't do that at the beginning. You're setting something up that will be hard hmm. to change later on. You are letting them know that to be with you doesn't take that much effort. And the answer should always be to be with me takes a little bit of effort. I put in that effort. I expect to get it back. And you can control that with the texting. Then you wait also, even if you're dying to respond to them, you wait. You go, sorry, I was busy at work because it's no biggie for them to be busy at work. It's no biggie for you. You shouldn't make it more urgent for you than it is for them. But pay attention early on. Ah, so you have to, so you have to be paying attention. You have to kind of play into that game to set up boundaries near the beginning. Yes, boundaries, dynamics. (laughs) Look, true, but here's the reality and it's a harsh reality. It's like cement. Relationship dynamics are like cement. They dry very quickly and then they harden and it's hard to change them. You can change them before they're dry at the beginning, but they dry quickly. So pay attention to those small things. You are actually setting up a, a tacit, you know, unspoken agreement to something that you, know, you think, oh, I'll change that later. The cement will be drier. It'll be way harder to do that later. Change mm-hmm. it now. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, if anybody wants to follow you or learn more or listen to your podcast, where should they go? What should they type in? So they can put in guywinch.com. That's G-U-Y-W-I-N-C-H.com. That's my website. They'll find links to my TED Talks, the podcast. The podcast is called Dear Therapists. They can get it wherever they get their podcasts. And on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Guy Winch. And I'm Guy Winch author on Facebook. Perfect. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me.